Father, we are blessed to be here tonight. We're blessed because the words before us were with friends and with the Spirit. We're blessed, Father, because as uh, members of the body of Christ, we will one day stand before you and prepare to serve you for a millennium, if not longer. And then in that time, Father, we will be dependent on what we have been given based on what we have done here with what you've given us now. And, and we just know, Father, that the times we spend in studies like this are not wasted time, and they're certainly not a time, Father, that will be forgotten. You're building us up. You're, you're preparing us, Father, for something much greater in the time to come. Thank you, Lord, for that blessing. There are others who are not here and, and want to be, and we, we pray for them to return as you, as you would permit. And for many others in the world, Father, who do not even know you, they are totally outside your plan. And we, we recognize the blessed place we, we are here tonight. And for the study, Father, guide my teaching. Open ears so that everyone in this room may hear this word as you intend it. And again on the web. And Father, we pray that you would be glorified in what we do in this ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 9. You may have noted as we've studied up to this point in chapters uh, 7 and 8, he temporarily suspended his account of Peter. We haven't heard about Peter now for a little while. And he suspended it so he could describe the events that concern three men. These three men are the ones you may remember who contributed to the movement of the gospel outward from Jerusalem. First, you saw Stephen. He contributed by his death and the persecution that followed. Then we read about Philip. Philip was, you know, was the other uh, was one of the other seven that included Stephen. He became the first evangelist of the church. These are good questions, by the way, for kids or for anyone you want to test on basic biblical knowledge. Who was the first martyr? Who was the first evangelist? Those are the two names of Stephen and Philip. And now we learn about Saul. And Saul is the third of the three men who are connected in that crucial moment back in chapter 7 when Stephen was, was persecuted and killed. Saul, we heard at the end of that chapter, was standing there approving of the whole thing. And now we're going to look at him in detail just for one chapter as a prelude of sorts before Luke returns to Paul proper in the second half of the book of Acts. So we are not done with Peter, not by a long shot, but just for one more chapter the story of Peter has been suspended while Luke deals with these three men who all were united by a single moment in Jerusalem. Saul is the man God has selected to lead the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. So in all three men, they're linked by a kind of evangelistic theme. Stephen's persecution led to the spread. Philip's outward work into the region of Samaria certainly led to the spread of the gospel. And Paul becomes chief among all who spread the gospel in these days. It's perhaps the greatest irony of the New Testament that the strongest, most vociferous persecutor of the church becomes the church's most important minister. And that's the classic story of Saul becoming Paul. Now, because Saul is so central to the spread of the church and to the, uh, to the uh, foundation of the church and the spread of the gospel, and he's very central to the story of Acts, which we know that comes later in the book, I think it's important we take a few minutes as we open up this chapter to consider his history, his background even, and based on what we can see in Scripture and what there is to know in, in tradition and elsewhere, you, you get a very rich, full picture of the man Saul and of who he was. And it helps, I think, as you read the stories of him and his own accounts in the letters to know more about the man. We know from Paul's own testimony in the book of Acts, later again in his letters, that he was raised in Tarsus. Tarsus was a city in Asia Minor. Today we'd say southern Greece, I'm sorry, southern Turkey. In its day, it was an important Greek city. It contained one of 
only three known medical schools in the world. So it had some prominence in that regard. Jews were forced to emigrate to Tarsus under Alexander the Great. They were essentially shipped there as forced labor to help build the city and to do the work that Alexander the Great wanted done in that region. The city itself is featured at various points in history in different places and in different um, ways. You can see it connected to famous uh, people of, of uh, history like Cicero, uh, Augustus Caesar, Mark Antony, Cleopatra. All of these people spent time in the city or had some connection to it in a meaningful way. Tradition says that Saul was born actually in the Upper Galilee and moved to Tarsus when his parents fled the arrival of the Romans in the first century B.C. Paul tells us in at least one time in Scripture, that he was raised as a Pharisee. He was the Pharisee among Pharisees. Which would have to mean certain things. If we were to take him at his word, it means that he had a certain style of upbringing that was unique to a Pharisee. You did not become a Pharisee by luck. You didn't arrive there as an adult. You didn't have a normal childhood, and then at some point later in adulthood, you came upon the opportunity to join the Pharisees, like joining the Marines. It didn't work that way. You had to have been trained and prepared for that role from the earliest of your childhood in order to even be considered, much less accepted. So if Paul was a Pharisee, we know some things about how he was probably raised based on the the way Pharisees were raised. It would have meant he was raised in a very strict Jewish set of practices that included studying Scripture starting at the age of five. At the age of ten, he would have moved to studying rabbinical tradition or rabbinical teachings in addition to Scripture. By the age of 13, he would have had his bar mitzvah as all Jewish boys would have done. During his teen years, then, he would have been shipped off from Tarsus to Jerusalem, where he would have been as a boarding school. And in the case of Saul, his boarding school was an internship under Gamaliel. So from about the age of 13 until he was adult and and on his own, he would have been living in Jerusalem. We know from Paul's own statements elsewhere in Acts, Acts 23, 16, that his sister lives in Jerusalem. And so it's very likely he stayed with his sister and lived there as a teenager while he was studying under Gamaliel. Uh, Paul also tells us that he was a Roman by birth. Now, that would have meant that either his father or perhaps his grandfather may have been granted citizenship by the emperor. Remember, Rome had not been in this area of the world until uh, barely a few decades to at most a century before before, uh, Paul would have been born. So... You don't go too far back in his family before you find who his citizenship would have derived from. Uh, Usually, citizenship was granted as a political favor or as a reward for loyal service to the emperor. That's how you began your citizenship in your family. That would bring significant benefits in Rome, including protection from degrading punishment, which you know Paul makes point of later. The child of a citizen was granted citizenship in Rome if the child was registered with Rome within 30 days of birth. So, if uh, you were an, a citizen, however you came upon it, uh, whether granted or by birth, your child could get it if you registered that child with Rome within 30 days. Registered infants received a certificate, which became their legal evidence of citizenship. And it's appa- it, it seems, it's not said, but it seems that Paul possessed one of these de- documents and carried it with him wherever he went because his statement to a Roman guard that he was a Roman citizen would not have been taken at face value without some evidence. So it's likely he kept his citizenship, his birth certificate, so to, so to speak, with him everywhere he went on his missionary journeys. That was his protection. Roman citizens would assume, as a part of their citizenship, 
three Greek names. We traditionally in our culture have two names. We may carry a middle name, but we don't often use it. But in Roman society, you had three Greek names. We only know one of Saul's Greek names, and that would have been Paulus, or as we say today, Paul. He also would have kept his Jewish Hebrew given name. So his Hebrew given name was Saul. Saul was obviously well-educated, obviously very intelligent. Obviously, he was trained in critical thinking. All of this would have come as a, as a consequence of his pharisaical training, and he was skilled in argument. He also spoke at least four languages, perhaps more. We know he would have spoken, of course, Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, and also Latin because of the Roman influence. And though his intellect was impressive, his physical stature would have left something to be desired by his own testimony. He was a poor speaker, he said. He suffered physical illnesses. He spoke of those. He spoke of his frailties at times. He must have been rather short, shorter than average, because when he and Barnabas appear before Greeks at a point later in the, in the book of Acts, they mistake Barnabas and Paul for two Roman gods. And they assume Barnabas is Jupiter and they assume Paul is Mercury. And it's interesting, but in their lore, Jupiter was, was of normal size and Mercury was unusually short or small. And because they assigned that role to Paul, it suggests perhaps that that's why they thought he was Mercury. Looking beyond his physical ability, we know he completed his missionary journeys under great distress at times, and he suffered persecution to the point that in Galatians 6.17, he talks about his body being marked and scarred from all that he's experienced in his mission work. So that's a little bit about the man Saul. As we move now into Acts 9, this is a famous chapter we've all studied, and I'm sure at least are familiar with it. But we're studying here, or we're witnessing here, perhaps the greatest conversion in the history of Christianity. And that's probably not an overstatement. Even Paul himself made his own testimony of the events in chapter 9 uh, a feature to his narratives in numerous places in the book of Acts and in his own letters. In fact, we could probably imagine that Paul gave his own testimony on many occasions and probably in many circles where he went. He was asked for it because it was so dramatic. It was so unexpected and such a clear and obvious statement from God of his intentions and of his capability to change the heart of men. And so the story is just singularly impressive for the, for the very fact of who Saul was and who Paul became. So with the scene set for what we're going to study, let's look at Saul's conversion, beginning with the first two verses of the chapter. Luke sort of sets the scene for us here as well. So Acts 9, 1 and 2, Luke writes, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This little entry for Luke gives us an opportunity to understand a little bit more what was in Paul's heart as we see the chapter start here. Paul, uh, Saul is still demonstrating this intense hatred for Christians. You remember back in chapter uh, 8 when Saul was said to be ravaging the church as we opened that chapter looking at Philip? Ravaging there, throwing men and women into prison. Saul has become focused on persecuting Christians after what he saw happen at the feet of Stephen, at the stoning of Stephen. And it seems as though Saul has convinced himself that he can personally find and destroy every single believer in the process of going out and looking for them. There's, a sense, there's certainly a bit of pride and hubris there and a, com, a, a tremendous zeal for what he believes is true. Now we see the extent now to which Saul is going here and, and endeavoring to accomplish his self-appointed role of chief 
persecutor of, of the church, or as he would probably say, prosecutor of these people. He is following, the, in, in a sense, the pattern that the Sanhedrin had followed back in Jerusalem. Remember what the Sanhedrin did? First, give threats. And if the threats weren't heeded, follow them up with taking action, in this case, murder. And Luke says the same thing, essentially, in verse 1. Breathing threats and murder. That, Paul, that Saul is really following the same pattern. But now he goes to the next level. He takes the step of involving the Roman authorities. That's not specifically stated in verses 1 and 2, of course, but it's implied by what he's doing here with these letters. The Romans had granted to Jewish leadership in this day, by treaty, the right to issue letters of extradition. Essentially, indictments or arrest warrants would be a better comparison. For anyone who was violating Jewish law, but was outside the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Caesar extended this right to all Jews in all of the Roman territories. So if a Jew lived anywhere in Rome and was accused of violating Jewish law, the Sanhedrin could issue an arrest warrant for that individual, and that person would be taken into custody by, but with the help of Roman authorities so that they could be bound and delivered back to the Sanhedrin for trial. That's how the Jews were able to exert influence beyond their own borders and beyond the city of Jerusalem under Roman authority. So with a letter like this, a man like Saul could move to a city like Damascus, enter a synagogue, find these, these uh, uh, criminals, as he would call them, the Christians, and then with these letters gain Roman support to have them arrested. In fact, this kind of a step, this kind of a maneuver, was necessary from Saul's point of view because, remember, the Jewish Christians had fled Jerusalem after the persecution of Stephen. So they had all dispersed and were now outside the direct control of the Sanhedrin in the city. So this was the only practical way he had for trying to corral them. Saul went looking for members, we're told, of the way. He went looking for members of the way. That was the term for the early Jewish believer because they were said to follow the way of Jesus. Just as in the Old Testament you would hear prophets talking about Israel following the way of Jehovah or of apostates or unbelievers or, or uh, heathens following the way of the wicked. Those are terms that you hear directly in the Old Testament. That's the sense of the word way here. Following after somebody. When Saul found these people, he brought them back to Jerusalem bound, as you saw already. But we know from other texts that it would lead to their beatings or to their imprisonment, even perhaps to their death. Paul himself says later in the book of Acts, or in his own letters, I believe, that he was responsible for the deaths of Christians. The man Saul was responsible for killing Christians, and yet later that man became a Christian himself. It makes me wonder, if we know Paul's arrival in heaven will include a glorious reward for him because of the work he did as Paul, what kind of reward awaited those who were killed by Paul? And what kind of reconciliation took place when Paul entered the Lord's presence and met with those he had killed earlier? So this trip to Damascus appears to be Saul's first effort to leave the city of Jerusalem and do this tracking down. There's no evidence to suggest he's been doing this routinely. This looks to be his first attempt. Chapter 9, verse 3. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul was approaching Damascus, 
which means Saul was almost there. He hadn't quite made it, but he was almost there. And God intervened in what seems to be the last moment to redirect him. As Paul tells this story later in Acts, as he relates and recounts how this moment happened, he mentions that this happened at midday. Luke doesn't say it in this time, but Paul later says it. Well, if it's at midday, we can assume a bright sun in the desert of Damascus. And yet, whatever brightness came from the sun, this brightness overpowered it so that it was much brighter still. And with the light came a voice. We know the voice of Christ himself. It's probably also the case that he made himself visible. In other words, not merely through a light, but that his physical presence, his face, perhaps even, was visible to Paul in the moment. Which is why when Paul hears this voice, he says, who are you? Speaking to this individual. The repeating of Saul's name when Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That repeating reminds us of how God often appeared to the Old Testament prophets or to Abraham, repeating their names. Abraham, Abraham. To which they would often say, here I am, Lord. Or something to that effect. In Greek, as you would look at this text in Greek, Saul's name in Greek here is written in its Hebrew form, not in its Greek form. Which would indicate that the voice that's speaking actually spoke in Hebrew. Which would seem to suggest or seem to reflect what many believe, which is that the Jews speak Hebrew because that is God's language to men. The Hebrew language is in fact the first language. Before the languages were scattered at the Tower of Babel, it was all Hebrew. Though Saul never met Jesus personally in his earthly ministry before the crucifixion, here he has a very real, very personal encounter with the risen Lord. And this encounter and the ones that follow become Paul's validation for his claim to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He always comes back and points to these moments. Jesus' first words to Saul ask a very interesting question. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus asks. And the statement is understandable in at least two ways. First, as Saul persecutes Christians, he persecutes the body of Christ. And Jesus is the head. So if the body is persecuted, the head is included. And in just knowing that, we take some comfort, I assume, knowing that as we suffer for our faith, Jesus feels it with us, as he says it here. But there's a second way to see this as well. It reflects the persecution of the church is a persecution of the message, ultimately, of the gospel itself, of the word. And Jesus is the word. So to the extent that the church is persecuted, you are persecuting Jesus because you are trying to suppress or, if possible, eliminate the word itself, the message of the gospel, as he is the word made flesh. Lastly, I think the question is also interesting precisely because it's phrased as a question. Of all the things Jesus could have said to him, In that initial moment, he chose to ask him this and ask him this in a question form. Why not simply say, for example, Saul, stop persecuting me. Yet Jesus asked Saul, why? Why do you persecute the Lord? He asks. It seems the question was calculated by my estimation to shock Saul all the more. Because as I said a moment ago, Saul was zealous, but he was zealous for the truth, or so he thought. He was zealous for the right things, or so he assumed. And all of that under the guise of doing this for the Lord, right? Doing the work of the Lord. That was Saul's understanding of his own behavior and his own motivations. By asking the question, the Lord shocked Saul, I think, to consider that he'd been fighting against God all this time as opposed to for him. Saul's answer, I think, can be confusing for us a little bit if we don't keep a proper perspective. Because when he answers, who are you, Lord? There's often that moment of confusion 
that comes from the apparent contradiction of the statement. He seems to label who he's talking to, even as he asks, who are you? Well, the way to reconcile this is to understand that Saul's use of the term Lord here is not to suggest that he came to know Jesus as Lord. In reality, it's simply a respectful term, like sir. And if it's to be understood in its context, no one asks the question, who are you, Steve? They ask, who are you, sir? And so Lord here is intended in that sense. Who are you, sir? The fact that he localizes it to an individual, though, suggests that the voice sounded human. The voice may have even been attached to a person in some sense. The fact that the voice originated in heaven would have at least given Saul some indication that he was talking to a heavenly source. So it's probably also the case that though he didn't know who it was, this is something from God. There's something going on in heaven. Paul asks, and then he waits for an answer. And he gets it, a specific one. The voice, we're told, is the very person Saul has been disparaging and persecuting, Jesus of Nazareth. Paul later adds that that's how it was described to him, Jesus of Nazareth. And without waiting for Saul to respond, because after all, what would, what would Saul say at this point if he was given the chance? Oops, sorry. No, I mean, he doesn't have anything to say to, to, to Jesus. He's stunned. So Jesus moves forward from that and gives him directions. He says, you're to go on to Damascus, but you're going to wait for me to give you instructions when you get there. Meanwhile, his traveling companions are speechless. They say they hear a voice, but in the account later of Acts 22, when Paul is giving his testimony, he clarifies that his companions heard something, but they couldn't understand the words. They saw nothing. They see Paul's reaction, or Saul's reaction, of course. They hear something, but they don't hear anything intelligible. So the whole thing leaves them completely mystified about what's happening and why all of a sudden Saul is, is uh, having this reaction. This fact tells us something very important. The fact that Saul had this experience and his two companions had a different experience tells us something very, very important. God's sovereignty is clearly on display here. So much so, so overtly that it seems to be screaming at us. First, the Lord is seen to be sympathizing with his own people in their persecution to the point that he feels the persecution himself in his own statement. So from God's point of view and his sovereignty, he is not disconnected in any sense from the church he is establishing. He feels what they feel. He takes it personally. Secondly, he's willing to interrupt the plans of men to preserve and later to grow his church. No one is off limits. Anyone who would suggest a concept that God loves us so much that he won't interfere with our own will doesn't understand Acts chapter 9. Because here is a clear example of what God is willing to do to interrupt the plans of men when the plans of men are not consistent with God's purposes. And he does it in this case by turning the chief persecutor of the church into his chief builder. Third, he takes action without the involvement of another human agent. God himself appears to Saul. He doesn't need a messenger. He doesn't send an angel. He doesn't send an evangelist. He doesn't create it through circumstance or people or other heavenly bodies. He does it, in this case, personally. If he can do it one time personally, then it stands to reason he can do it that way anytime he wishes. The fact that he does sometimes and can at any time means he's not dependent on anyone to do it. No ambassador, no intermediary is required for God to intervene and change the course of man's plans. Fourth, God immediately guides Saul into a new walk of life according to God's purpose. God lays out the new plan for Saul from the start. There isn't a question asked. There isn't an option given. There isn't 
an invitation offered. It is, here's what you're going to do. If we were to argue that God, for some reason, never chooses to step in and intervene in man's life or in any way impinge on our will, this example completely and and entirely refutes that thinking. Because if it can be done here, even one time, then the principle is not true. In some circles of the church, certainly, you know, people teach erroneously that God, for some reason, has, by his own volition, stepped aside and determined for himself never to impinge on the will of men, that everyone's choices are left to their own, and it's up to us as to how and whether we follow the Lord. This example denies that principle. If it's denied even once, it doesn't exist. Then how does God deal with men? And grace now becomes the answer. Saul is never given a choice. Saul is never asked if he would like to give his life to Jesus. Saul is never invited to come welcome Jesus into his heart. The only question Saul is ever asked is, why are you persecuting me? Saul's life had been committed to God's purposes even before Saul knew Jesus existed. His upbringing as a Pharisee, his life of preparation in the Scriptures, his zeal and his character and his personality and the way he is so strongly dedicated to the mission God gives him are all things God implanted in him so that when God was ready to use him for the mission of the Gospel, he would be the right man for the job. He was being prepared long before he even knew the Lord so that he would be ready when God needed him. Finally, God purposefully selected Saul to hear the words, but yet permitted his companions to have a different experience. God's plan of salvation operates according to his sovereign will and his sovereign purpose. And there was one man among three who was determined by God's will to know the truth and the other two were not. Because it was not in God's will that they would know, at least not in this moment. Now the experience impacted Paul both spiritually in the moment and physically. Verses 8 and 9. Saul got up from the road, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So we know he's been blinded by the encounter, and so his companions have to lead him into Damascus. And while he's in the city, he doesn't eat or drink for, another, for the three days that he's there waiting. God's purpose in the blindness was probably to reinforce the reality of what happened. Sometimes something like this, if it was this dramatic and this unusual, happens and then an hour or two later you're trying to remember, did it really happen or not? Was it just my, was I overcome by a hallucination? Did I just dream the whole thing? If there wasn't any tangible physical reminder for what had just happened a few hours earlier, it's possible that the whole event might have been hard for Paul to, to synthesize in his head and to really agree with and understand. But when you're blind... The interesting thing about that particular choice on God's part is not only the fact that because it's physical, it's tangible, and Paul's got a reminder, Saul's got a reminder he can't avoid, but the nature of that particular one is such that you are cut off from the world so that all you have is your thoughts. You're sitting there in darkness reliving the last thing you saw. That's all you you really have. It focused his concentration on it in a unique way. It seems so perfectly tailored to bringing Saul through that process and not letting him think light of it. No pun intended. Saul has been blinded spiritually in the past, but he could see physically. Here, he's blinded physically, but at least now he can see spiritually. And later, the restoration of Saul's sight 
becomes an opportunity for the Lord to build Saul's relationship with a wounded church and simultaneously for the church to see Paul in this or see Saul now in this new way. So the, the fact that, that the Lord will turn to the church, a member of the church, and use that person to heal Paul physically is an important way in which he brings those two worlds together, where before it's hard to imagine that anyone would have been willing to stand in a room with the man who was murdering Christians. Spiritually, Paul refers back to this moment so many times that we know it was a chief moment in his walk spiritually. He uses this, as I said already, as the defense of his commission as an apostle. But also, he speaks of this moment in contrition as a way of giving evidence that he was the least of all apostles, that God came to him under these circumstances when he was persecuting the church and charging up to Damascus and God stepped in his way and stopped him. That story for, for Paul was a, an important pivot point in his life spiritually that he constantly came back to and talked about. So it's his salvation moment, similar to the way many of us can remember a salvation moment the rest of our life. It's also undoubtedly the case that Paul's memory of, of his days prior to his conversion became an inexhaustible supply of motivation for him when he did become an evangelist because you couldn't help but think that you had to make up for what you did prior to your conversion. Though grace didn't make that necessary and he understood that, he still nevertheless would have probably felt that what he had done previously was drive for him to do better in this new life. I mean, you, you can see God's wisdom in laying out these these pieces to Paul's life, Saul's life, so that he would be the right man for the job. Now, verses 10 through 16. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So just in what we hear here, we see already the church has made its way as far north as Damascus. And in that church and in that city is this man named Ananias. God gives Ananias a vision, we're told. Again, this is not always clear what God means when he says a vision. A dream could be possible, could be something else. Um, but it's clear enough that in the midst of this vision, there can be conversation, uh, which is very interesting, isn't it? And in the conversation that ensues, he's told about Saul, of course, and he's told that Saul's in a home and a man named Judas's home on a street called Straight. The reason that probably was the name was in ancient towns, ancient cities, and if you visit, I guess, any of the cities today, you'll see this, the streets are rarely straight. They're crooked. But to have a long, straight street would have been unusual and noteworthy enough to name it as such. And in Damascus, there is a street, in ancient Damascus, a street that is broad and, and straight for a long distance. It actually runs from one end of the city to the other and connects the two main gates. And that was an unusual feature of major cities in that day. So it was the straight street. And he was to do this. He was to go down the street, walking down the street, inquiring as he went, is there a man named Judas living on the street? Is there a house named Judas? Until someone would tell him, oh, well, there's a guy there named Judas. And that was the home he was to go into. This is reminiscent of the way that the apostles or the disciples were told by Jesus to find the uh, cult that he would ride in on when he came into Jerusalem. 
Find two colts, they'll be tied together. Tell the man that the Lord has need of them. He'll let you take them for free. Later when they look for the upper room, look for the man who's carrying the water pot. He'll lead you to the upper room. It's like cloak and dagger kind of stuff, but it also requires a measure of faith for the disciples, or in this case Ananias, to follow those instructions without really a clue where he's going. Trusting the Lord will lead him to the right place. When he finds his house, what he's going to find inside, of course, is Saul of Tarsus. And this man Saul will be praying. And through his prayer, he'll be given an answer by his own vision that a man named Ananias is on his way to heal him. Isn't it amazing to see how guys at work here and these two men at the same time? Saul's praying for a miracle to regain his sight. Meanwhile, God is already at work selecting that man and directing him to Saul while telling Saul what the guy's name is going to be. So there's no doubt about the fact that God is at work in bringing these two things together. And even the names of the two men being revealed to one another is such that they can't help when they meet to acknowledge one to another that God has brought them together. Just complete awareness of God's sovereignty in the moment. This is such a classic story of God's sovereignty, not only because of how God is orchestrating the elements, but because of his willingness to reveal himself so clearly to the participants. There's plenty of examples in Scripture of God's sovereignty at work in the lives of men, but rarely do they themselves get the insight in the moment to see God at work. They may have recognized it later, but few see it in the moment. Here God has gone out of his way to make sure everybody's aware of what's going on and who's in charge. Remember this story as you share your own concerns with God in prayer. And, and, if, and when you ask for his forgiveness or his intervention in a certain circumstance, remember how he was willing to work in this moment, how clearly he can and will work. And then remember that the reason Saul is in this situation was because God made him blind. And then remember that his blindness was a part of the way the Lord saved him from his sin. So Saul praying to have his blindness removed, which is a problem God himself gave him, which was a component of how he saved him. And finally, take note that the answer to Saul's prayer will include, as Jesus said, a new mission with a new revelation that will include knowing how much he's going to suffer for God's glory. So as you pray solutions to problems, just be aware, it's almost a certainty that the problem was by God's hand. It may have been your sin that created it, but it was God's hand that orchestrated how your sin would come upon you, how it would manifest, what kind of consequence would result. And then as you pray for a relief of that consequence, recognizing God is at work in the consequence, be prepared for the fact that what he may be trying to do is save you in some greater sense through this process, but with the solution may come an even greater challenge or trial. So finally, Ananias responds in the way you'd expect. Ananias says exactly what I would have said. He says, no way. He says, I'm not going to go to this guy. Don't you know who we're talking about here? Ananias correctly points out that Saul is not one of the good guys. He's been persecuting the church quite effectively. He has letters in hand to arrest and take more away to Jerusalem. I do find it interesting that Saul's mission preceded him. Even before he arrived in the city, apparently men knew he was coming because word was already around in the city that Paul was doing this. Now, despite Ananias' efforts to help God and show him the, the right path here, Jesus uh, steps in, corrects Ananias. He says a number of things. His psalm is my chosen instrument. Chosen instrument of God. I want you to notice here again the lack of, of any sense here of choice or, or free will in any of this. Paul can't say no. He's not even asked. The guy is blind. 
How is he going to say no? What else is he going to do at this point? It's as if God has actually made him captive to this plan. And it won't just stop here. I mean, it's, it's been this way from the beginning, but it will continue even into the mission. Paul himself says that he was compelled to preach the gospel. He was, he was a slave to the gospel. He, was, he never spoke in terms other than an absolute requirement to preach the gospel. A burden that he could never escape. And also notice here, Saul is never recruited or, or encouraged. He's told how much he's going to suffer. He's not bought There's no soft sell here. There's just nothing at all of what we today would typically run to when we're trying to enlist support. Now, we're not God, of course, and we don't have the capacity to force anyone to do what they don't want to do. That's not the application you make, obviously. But as we teach others how God may call them or how they may feel the leading of the Lord, maybe we should be careful to impress upon them the importance of listening and responding when they feel a call without adding an element of choice when there really may not be one. There's only obedience or disobedience. Or another way to say it is, you will be serving him the easy way or the hard way. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, Paul says later in Romans. Now Saul's future has been set, and as Jesus says, it's going to include suffering. Specifically, Paul uh, will Saul will become Paul. He will be the apostle to the Gentiles, as Jesus described him. This is dramatic. It's, it's really alluding to what's coming next in the book of Acts, that there is an appointed place for the Gentiles in the church. And not merely the Samaritans, not merely the, the pseudo-Jews, but truly those outside of the, the knowledge of the Old Testament and of the prophets and of the law. The Gentile world is going to receive the gospel. In addition, Jesus says he's going to testify before kings. We know this comes later in the story of Acts. Finally, he will testify of the gospel before the Jewish people. Now, they are not the main focus of Paul's ministry, and after a time, they won't become the focus of the church in general. But Paul always gave the Jew opportunity first. He always said he went to the Jew first and then the Gentile. He never stopped looking for the remnant of Israel wherever he went. Luke's account in the second half of the book is really an expose of Jesus' promise here that Paul would suffer, that Saul was going to suffer in his ministry. That's how the book really starts to focus down on his life. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't expect much fear from Ananias in all that he asks Ananias to do? He really doesn't. Ananias, for example, isn't supposed to preach to Saul. He isn't supposed to teach Saul. He's not supposed to convert Saul, change his mind, or or encourage him about any of this. He's simply going to lay hands on the man, and Jesus is going to do all the talking. That's it. And with those words, Jesus has persuaded Ananias to go, and so he goes and attends to Saul. Verse 17, Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. 
How many of us, three days after we became Christians, could confound the most brilliant of Jews in their attempt to undermine the truth of the gospel? How many of us would have been prepared enough out of Scripture to present a defense this powerful? Here you see the genius of Saul becoming Paul. And it reinforces our understanding that God was at work in preparing this man for this mission even before he became a believer. You cannot help but notice Saul's preparedness becoming immediately useful, if not necessary, to the role that God has given him as an apostle. So, going back through the text briefly, and then we'll end here. Ananias finds Saul, gives him the words, puts on his laying of hands. All of this, I think, has to be credited to Ananias as an extreme display of faith. It's easy for us to sort of overlook that because we know where Paul goes in his ministry and we see him now from that point of view, forgetting that in this moment, no one knows what's going to happen with him. No one knows his future except God. So to even enter Saul's presence had to have taken tremendous courage. It would be the equivalent of us walking across a battlefield during war and stepping into the bunker of the enemy without any weapons while he's still behind the machine gun, so to speak. And doing that with a confidence that you're not going to be harmed in the process. I mean, that's the kind of risk he was taking here, unquestionably. Secondly, he addresses Saul as brother right from the beginning. That's a statement of faith on his part. There is no love in that statement, I believe. I think it was spiritual love, if you will, some kind of faith-based love. But that doesn't mean it came with all the emotive side to it. Not yet. And that is the equivalent, in my opinion, of, of a father or mother uh, calling the convicted murderer of their child brother or sister in the Lord after they hear of a conversion in the, in the jail cell? Would we be able to go into that jail cell and, and call that person brother or sister and have it mean something to us? You're somewhere in the, in the territory of what Ananias is experiencing when you think of that kind of an example. The Lord, though, declared to Ananias, Saul has been converted and Ananias, as a result, does not come in waiting for Saul to prove himself. And I take that as a personal conviction of sorts because it is very easy to mentally assent to something but not really in your heart live according to it. And it would be easy for someone to have told me, for example, that someone like Saul was converted and yet as I come into his presence for the first time and even if I'm willing to use the term brother, nonetheless, I start having conversations to test and to examine, and to wait and sense whether to trust what I've heard. Versus what I see going on here, which is Ananias completely willing to agree with what he's been told, and not asking Saul to say or do anything to prove it. Much more difficult test. Jesus' use of the man Ananias to confer this, this new calling upon Saul is notable for what happens, but also for who Ananias is not. Specifically, Ananias is not an apostle himself. And Jesus converted Saul, therefore, without the direct involvement of any other apostle, neither on the road nor here in this moment, which is a very powerful statement at this stage of the book of Acts, because up to this point, the apostles themselves were integral to every next move of the church. As the church moved outward and as it drove into a new audience, or as it reached a new place on earth, it was delivered through an apostle or someone the apostles had laid hands on. Which, if that had not been broken at some point, it would support the fallacy 
that the line of succession needed to be present or that there was some man-made process required to pass the gospel along. You can see how heresy would build around that thought very quickly. This defies that kind of thinking because here you have a man who has never yet even met an apostle, much less been transferred anything through them or any other believer for that matter uh, of note. And yet he has been converted and now assigned the role of apostle by the power of Christ and with the assistance of a, of a fairly insignificant character in the, in the case of Ananias. If God can do that here for a man like Saul, then self-evidently he is not dependent on anything he began with the original apostles. He simply chose to use them for his own purpose. He will and he does raise up others. This is the most important conversion in the book of Acts, hands down. Do you notice this entire moment, this one and the earlier one combined, they take place with zero signs of the Spirit. No speaking in tongues. No miracles. Saul is converted without any spirit manifestations. It is purposeful and unique and, and dedicated for a purpose. And this is not a, a situation that meets that purpose. And therefore, there are no demonstrative signs of the spirit. For any who would argue that they are necessary and that the book of Acts in some sense proves that they're necessary, your stumbling block, among others, is Paul himself was converted without any of those signs. How can Paul himself be converted without those signs if those signs are essential and important to every believer? As Paul regains his sight, his first instinct and desire, we're told, is to be baptized. This is even before he ate and drank. Attending to the spiritual before the physical. Here's a yet another reminder that the first responsibility of a believer is to submit to water baptism at their first opportunity if they pass up the earliest opportunity for water baptism, they enter into a state of disobedience that must be dealt with eventually. Having been baptized, Saul then eats and gains back his strength. And he spends a few days, we're told, with the disciples in Damascus, but he immediately begins to preach in the synagogues. I would pay a fair amount of money to be in one of those synagogues the first day Saul walked in there and preached Jesus. Because I'm Pretty sure they hadn't heard the story yet about the road to Damascus and they weren't expecting what they heard come out of his mouth. Would they have assumed he was joking at first? Would they have just been shocked? They're not sure what's going on. It would have been amazing to watch. His preaching has two effects as we finish tonight. First, it amazes the church because they try to reconcile what they're seeing with what they've heard of the man in the past. And in that, you see God working to edify the church. What an amazingly edifying thing. Building their confidence that here's the man they were the most scared about. God has turned him, and the story would have been out by now about how it happened. God has turned him to becoming the chief advocate for the church. What an encouragement to an early church that was worried about whether or not they had the staying power in the face of, of earthly forces that were trying to undermine the church. If this can happen to Saul, what can't God do to preserve his own church? So while it amazes the church, it confounds the Jews the greatest threat to the church has become its greatest defender overnight. And that naturally stirred up the Jews. And that sets the stage for the rest of the story of chapter 9. Because now they have a new target in Saul. So the second half of the chapter, as we come back in two weeks, will deal with how the Jews in that city and elsewhere begin to react to a man who previously was on their side, now is no longer. And it begins the next stage of persecution in the church. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for Saul, Father. Thank you for the work you did in turning his heart on the road to Damascus. And I'm particularly thankful, Father, to know that you did that without any help. For I knew that already. But on the other hand, Father, it is a, 
an edifying reminder to remember that you are able to change men's hearts. You're able to do work without any dependence on anyone else. For many in this room who may know family or friends who we desire to see come to know you and to receive the Spirit, receive grace, it is an encouragement, Father, to know that there is nothing standing between them and salvation but, but the act of the Spirit. And if we pray to the one who has that authority, and if we pray to the one who has that power, then we're speaking to the right person, to you. And so our prayers, Father, are justified and, and um, are worth our time and effort and, and give us encouragement to know we are, we are speaking boldly before you and intervening on their behalf. We just pray, Father, your, your will would be to change their hearts. And as well, Father, in our own walk, we are thankful to know that the Lord is with us and He hears us and He, he knows what we go through. Give, let us, uh, Father, have courage to follow knowing He is with us. And Father, we ask You bring us back in a few weeks with others perhaps and a chance to study all the more and finish this book. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.